We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded as the first storytellers, the first communities and the first creators of Australian culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 4 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. In this episode, I'm interviewing Jeremy McLeod, a registered architect, founding director of sustainable architecture firm Breathe Architecture, and founder of alternative not-for-profit development company Nightingale Housing. Jeremy shares some of the main initiatives that he uses in Breathe and Nightingale projects to have the most impact on climate change. Have your notebooks ready, because Jeremy is giving a lot of his tricks away today. Let's jump in. I'm here today in the Breathe offices with the incredible Jeremy McLeod, founder of Breathe and Nightingale Housing. How are you going, Jeremy? Yeah, good. Thanks, Dan. Uh, good to have you back here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for letting me back in. It's, it's great to see that you're now in a, a second office as well. Started off with a small office in the garage. It would just, now, <laughs> now. Keep on moving into progressively smaller offices. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, no, thank you so much for being part of the podcast and for sharing so much information with, you know, all the architects who are Institute members, but then all architects who aren't members, but then also the public. So thank you so much for being a champion and sharing all that information. So two things we're going to be talking about is some of the amazing work that you're doing in Nightingale, but we're going to be focusing a little bit on the core tenets of what you're trying to achieve on your projects. Did you want to tell us a little bit about maybe the the top three elements that you're trying to achieve in, in the bigger developments that you're working on at the moment? Well, I think that, you know, Good question. <laughs> um, I think if we talk about the top three things, and let's talk about breathe for a moment and the way we practice, you know, and how we think about sustainability, and let's focus those three things in to talk about the sustainability. And I think that yeah, that this message is for every young architect out there, kind of you know trying to wrestle with sustainability, trying to deliver on that at the same time as high construction prices. You know, to many clients, you know, I feel your pain, my friend. Um, <laughs> But also for all of you, all of you out there that, you know, that care about architecture and design, but, you know, you're not an architect, you want to engage an architect or you're thinking about how you can have an impact in your own life. So this is, you know, these are the, these are our key approaches to everything. So what are the three things, Dan, that we are currently focused on? And when I was a young architect starting out and sustainability was important to me, I tried to do everything all the time on every project. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was that the projects were, were complex hmm. and there was lots of moving parts. And I would say, to be totally honest, not hugely successful because they didn't have necessarily a clear idea. It was just lots and lots of things happening all simultaneously. As I've got a little bit older and a little bit wiser, <laughs> and also as I've really started to dig into, you know, issues around, you know, climate change, you know, you know, what does it mean when we signed a, you know, an agreement in Paris in 2015 as a nation, you know, what does that mean to get to net zero and how do we actually do it and what role do architects play in that? You know, I think that, I think that we have to focus on the big things first. We've got to walk before we run and everyone has to do that. And so the three big things, Dan, electrification, electrification, and electrification. <laughs> so, so those are yeah, pretty easy to remember. I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So look, it's going to sound it's going to sound boring. It's going to sound boring. But kind of uh, let me give some context, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to 
I'm going to tell you what the easy things are to do. And I'm, we're going to talk about how we approach it at Bree in different project scales from a house through to an apartment building or a mm. building. Right. All right. So why is electrification important? So in 2015, our federal government agrees to sign the Paris Agreement, which basically says that we, as a society, have to help the world get to net zero emissions by 2050. What's our pathway to do that? And so let's look at uh, emissions by sector. Mm. So we have three big emission sectors in globally. So one is the built environment. And that's the thing that we're going to talk about, right? So it's the single biggest emitter of carbon. So 40 or 39% of all global emissions come from the built environment. Of that 39%, two thirds are the way that we power our building. So heat our water, heat and cool our air, you know, turn the lights on, all of those things. So it is the single biggest culprit when it comes to carbon emissions, but it's also the single biggest opportunity to solve for carbon because we know how to do it. Mm. So this is the good news story that we can actually be part of the solution. Mm. So how do we get to net zero? Mm. So there's two parts of this, right? So part one is for us as architects and for all of you listening out there who are homeowners is to step one, no more fossil fuels. Mm. So doesn't matter what the gas lobby says, <laughs> you can live quite happily uh, in the 21st century without gas, a fossil fuel being plumbed into your building. Yeah, because when they say natural gas, yeah, not it, much of it is so natural. Well, <laughs> if you think about what natural gas is, essentially it's methane, mm. you know, and when methane gets burnt, when it gets extracted from the ground, you know, it's a fossil fuel, right? Mm. So as we burn it, as we extract it, as it leaks through that whole kind of process, you know, all of that leads to emissions. Whereas if we're powered by renewables, mm. zero emissions. Mm. So it doesn't matter how efficient a gas appliance is, mm. there will always be emissions associated with it. Mm. Whereas the minute you've got something electrified, mm. when you purchase renewable power, you have zero emissions. And remember, we have to get to net zero, mm. not get to net, you know, a little bit less than what it was before. <laughs> yeah, okay. And then the other, the other reason why we need to electrify everything now mm. is because think about it, we've got to get to net zero by 2050, which mm -hmm. means basically we need to you know, change out all of our gas appliances, ideally by 2030. Mm. Everyone out there looking to buy a new car, please look at a EV, because these things have a long tail, right? When we install a gas heater or mm. when we buy an internal combustion engine motor vehicle, they've got a long tail. They, they, they last like a car might last for somewhere between 11 and 20 years, mm. you know, and then, you know, the gas hot water service that you put in, might last for 40 years. So if you put that, put that in now, mm. it means that it's going to last past 2050, mm. which means we can't solve net zero. Mm. So electrify everything now. So basically, and it's easy for us as architects, right? So as we approach that for a house, we take our clients on a journey and we explain to them, you know, why we need to electrify everything. And then we also take them through, you know, how we do it. Mm. So induction rather than gas cooktop, and that's usually the hardest thing to sell. Mm. Generally, people don't care that you're using a heat pump to do hot water. Like people don't really care how their hot water is heated. Right. But they, <laughs> they but they do, uh, they do often care about their cooktop. So, and I think it's worthwhile taking someone, you know, you know, a client mm. to like uh, to an appliance, you know, um, showroom, mm. showing them how induction actually works. Mm. It's way faster and way more efficient than gas. So, yeah, for, for residential clients, it's relatively straightforward and it's about taking your clients through an education process. Mm. For the architects out there wondering how do, I, how do I deal with, you know, 
your builders that have always told me that we need gas to be able to meet our heating cooling loads or our hot water loads or our maximum electrical demand. Um, you can talk to my friends at Goodbye Gas, so they can work with you on that. Sorry, well, no, it's all right. And I guess in terms of like getting getting onto fully powered, so not having any gas appliances in the house, when you were saying we need to go renewable as well, what's that process like when you when you're talking, especially with residential clients, to say, right, we're going to be all electric, but we need to make sure that, that power is renewable. How do you manage that? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, really good question, and again, really easy to solve. So, there are heaps of resources out there. For architects, let me just close out on, you know, as architects, how do we make sure we do electric? So basically heat pumps for hot water or instantaneous electric hot water and you can use, you know, can I can I name brands like the stuff that yeah, we Yeah, sure. So sure. from my from my PI and Jira out there, <laughs> I'm not recommending anything. I'm just gonna tell you as a case study some of the appliances that we use on our projects. So Stiebel Eltron have great heat pumps that do hot water. Steve Ultron also have an instantaneous electric unit. Microheat have a single phase electric in- instantaneous unit. So they're kind of hot water systems. There are lots of suppliers that have the right refrigerants in their air conditioners. So low greenhouse warming potential refrigerants in their air conditioners, which could do heating and cooling. So it's, and then induction cooktops, everyone's doing induction now. So it's relatively easy to do for a house. Everyone else working on bigger projects, brief your consultant team, so your mechanical consultant and your electrical consultant before you meet with your developer manager and your project manager and your developer and talk to them about the importance of electrification and how this is the only thing that we have to achieve, right? Mm. So we brief all of our consultants and we tell them if they mention the word gas in a meeting, it will never work with them again yep. um, in, in all seriousness. Like there's just no reason for that. Mm. And then all of the big developers now have all got electrification pathway through to 2030 anyway. So Lemley, Smurvac, Fraser's, uh, Stockland, they're all 100% electric on the way through. Right. So if you're working with those bigger clients, it's, it's easier now. And is every electric provider, do they have a renewable option? Sorry, you really want me to answer the question? <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. All right. So then, then yeah, yeah. So... So we solve from our side mm. what the appliances are. So they're 100% electric. Mm. And then the next piece is an education piece with your clients. And again, you know, people don't understand that there is a renewable option for everyone buying power from kind of, you know, 80% of the retailers out there. So basically what you need to ask for is 100% certified green power. So that's independently aud- audited by the government. And what that does is even if you're buying from one of the you know, big dirty polluters like uh, AGL. If you're if you're a contract with AGL or your client does, you can still ask them to call that supplier and say, "Can you please switch me to 100% certified green power?" And it takes uh, it takes about five minutes. Mm. So if you call your energy supplier or if your client calls their energy supplier and their supply and their energy retailer pretends not to know what green power is or offers carbon neutral power or their own version of uh, you know, a smile power or whatever it is that they call it. Someone really called it that. Yeah, wow. Um, don't take it. So the green power is the independently audited um, uh, by the government. And what that does is that that takes basically uh, when you buy that green power, it then forces the suppliers, the generators like AGL and Energy Australia 
to go out there and reinvest into large-scale renewables, wind farms, pumped hydro, uh, large-scale solar. So you get to affect the market, like market side, we drive demand by changing 5% grain power, and then the suppliers fix the supply side by then being forced into our purchasing choices to go and invest more in renewables. Um, so it's it's pretty easy to fix. Mm. Then if you're working with a client that wants to be certified carbon neutral, so let's say we're working with Milieu, mm. um, so they're property developers based in Melbourne, they want to be uh, want to build a carbon neutral building, they will then buy the power under an embedded network, which says we're going to buy 100% grand power to this building. They're going to run a couple of clauses into the owner's corporation rules that say that the building's going to be carbon neutral operations. It's going to be audited annually. And through that auditing process, when they go and look at the energy consumption in the building and the carbon associated with that, if the building's being operated on 100% grain power, there's no carbon associated with the operation of that building electrically. So the, the carbon audit gets very, very cheap and there's not lots of offsets to buy. So, you know. It's really great because I think sometimes when people start to consider changing and then they think, yeah, well, will I really make an impact? It's about everyone doing that little bit. And then that will actually influence the people who generate the power to invest in all of those renewable energy sources more, which is yeah, and, great and so it's, it's 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 so impactful, particularly with the compounding kind of impact of all of us doing it at scale. You imagine there are fourteen thousand members of the Institute of Architects, and let's say all of those members do five houses per year, and then so we go and talk to you know. Um, at 75,000 homeowners mm. and we talk to all of them about buying 100% certified green power, mm. that is going to shift the dial on how power is generated in this country. Mm. So I think the, the big thing for us is, one, electrify everything, two, educate our clients on why it's important to buy green power and it's not that expensive. So I paid 4.5 cents a kilowatt hour in addition to my electricity to, to buy that. I go to the green electricity guide, and Dan, maybe you can put that in the show notes. Mm. That'll help you choose, you know, like it's got a kind of a list of the most sustainable, you know, energy suppliers in their country with the lowest emissions. So I buy from, you know, one of the top providers in there, still good pricing. But in terms of bang for buck, you know, if we think about, you know, um, solar is still actually a really good investment, rooftop solar, that's got a really good payback. But then you think about double glazing, additional insulation, external shading on your north and your western windows. Buying 100% green power mm. is the single best investment you can make in terms of reducing your carbon footprint in operations basically to zero. Mm. It is the best investment you can make every other week because you get immediate payback on that. Mm. And then I guess the other longer term piece is so if all of the built environment, all of us architects, you know, educate all of our clients and we're all electrified and we're all buying 100% green power, even if we can't get our clients to move over to green power, the simple act of having everyone electrified then means that when the government can finally get all of our energy providers to switch from black power to green power over time. So as our renewable energy mix ramps up, and which it is over time as they close down, you know, Liddell Coal Fired Station, as they're closing down Law Yang, they close down all of these um, uh, coal-fired plants, they're increasing our renewables. So the grid will be decarbonized. Mm. And so that's the, you know, and so that will happen anyway. Mm. We do our bit, they do their bit, and ideally... We get to 2050, Dan, and, we're, and and the built environment is no longer, you know, the biggest sector 
pumping out, you know, um, carbon to the atmosphere. Yeah. Well, that's what well, it seems relatively easy, but also just very exciting. So, well, I mean, you know, yeah. once you've got an architect, I guess, leading you down that path with the sort of information that you're sharing, I mean, it, sh- it should be more of an easy process for the clients that they're working with, yeah. which would be really great. Um, so, on smaller homes, it seems like it's, it's, a manageable process to get sort of to get onto certified green power. Let's sort of transition, I guess, now into that bigger space and the Nightingale space. So you mentioned how important it is to have a really efficient thermal envelope. How important that can be because you're no longer talking about a single dwelling. You're talking about 24, or even if you're talking about skyscrapers in the city, 2,000 uh, units. Um, how how do you guys start to go through that process where we're talking to? electrical consultants about considering green power, our substations, electrical cars, peak loading, off-peak loading. How does that all sort of then get into the renewable mix? Yeah, okay. So, I mean, it's interesting, right? Hmm. In my experience, electrical engineers don't understand the, um, the Australian energy grid they don't understand the mix. And, and obviously, I'm not, I might be speaking out of school, I don't know all electrical engineers, but often they have a very specific skill set, which is about you know calculating the maximum demand, but not actually having a position or understanding you know what our role is in you know in kind of market change towards decarbonisation, or even you know who's generating the power or how that works. Mm. So I think it's incumbent on us as architects, to think of ourselves at the top of the consultant food chain to understand that and then equip yourself with the right mechanical consultant and the right electrical consultant. So managing your, in a let's call it an apartment building, there is a lot of demand uh, from electricity in the mornings and in the evenings. So when people are getting up and getting ready for work in the morning and in the afternoons when they're you know coming home, you know, cooking dinner, having a shower, going to bed, whatever that is. So those are the two peak demand types. You want an electrical engineer that understands that and then works out rather than just building bigger and bigger substations, yes. <laughs> how to shift that peak demand. Mm. And there's some really simple, you know, software now to be able to kind of help do this. So it's just called demand management software. Wow. Okay. Um, and then if you think about something like heat pumps, you know, that might mm. be doing your hot water generation, mm. rather than the heat pump tasking on at, you know, seven o'clock in the morning. When everyone's getting up, turning their lights on, having a shower, mm. cooking breakfast, you know, putting their kettle on, running their induction cooktop, you know, cooking their vegan bacon and <laughs> you know tofu scrab or whatever it is. <laughs> so you want to be able to shift those peak loads. So mm. with heat pumps, you can heat water anytime you want. So you want an electrical engineer that understands that you might want to heat that off peak overnight. So when it's cheaper, and then store it in a buffer tank. Or you might want to task it to heat during the day if you've got a lot of rooftop solar on the building. So how does that work for, was that just work for your hot water or is that also somehow brought into the rest of the, how the rest of the building is heated as well? No, no. So if you think about, um, yeah, how we're heating and cooling our buildings, um, I mean, obviously, I mean, I don't want to deep dive on how to, <laughs> how to solve this, but, you know, building envelope, mm-hmm. you know, you shade your glazing to the north, mm-hmm. you shade your glazing to the West, you know, we have the technology now to be able to actually, you know, I feel like obviously anyone bit oddling can actually work out, you know, that you want that shade through summer and mm. then you want good, you know, mm. uh, winter sun. And, and through doing that on an apartment building, you have been able to cut out air conditioning 
in Melbourne. In the buildings, right. Yeah, in Melbourne, yeah. right. Okay. Mm. So we've done, you know, look, obviously we've finished a 90-hour Bowden in Adelaide and, mm. and our thermal modelling, even at seven and a half stars, mm. you know, even with shading to the northern glazing, mm. you know, we st- and even with the right window-to-wall ratios, I mean, it's another conversation we should have, Dan. Yeah. You know, mm. architects and glass, we need to talk about, you know, appropriate window-to-wall window ratios. So... Mm. um you know, windows are like massive holes in the thermal envelope of mm. the building. Even when they're double glazed, they're only broken. Mm. Um, so, you know, we, we right-size our windows and our bedrooms and our bathrooms, and then we tend to have more expansive glass in our living rooms. You know, when people are asleep and their eyes are closed, they don't need floor-to-ceiling. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so we have been able to solve in Melbourne to be able to say that Melbourne's a heating climate, not a cooling climate. Mm-hmm. Um and so we don't. We historically haven't needed air conditioning. And I say historically because globally, you know, we're at one point two degrees of warming currently. So, um, and we've just seen, you know, like just last week, the hottest temperatures that the world has ever experienced. Mm. You know, the hottest day ever. And then we're seeing, you know, heatwave conditions in Europe and the US, the likes of which they've never seen. And so, buckle up, everyone, because that's coming to us. Uh, mm. You know. In summer, you know, mm-hmm. so I do think that climate change and the way that we're experiencing that in our cities has come upon us much faster mm. than I anticipated. Mm. So, you know, I thought that we'd have thirty years before we'd start to feel the impacts of what we're feeling mm. in our cities. So, um, to be totally honest, Dan, you know, I don't. I all of our data is based on historic, mm. you know, nighttime temperatures and daytime temperatures. So, what is the was the future hold. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, you know what I mean? So, well, I remember us talking about uncomfortable, number of uncomfortable hot days. Mm. And I mean, that's that's an interesting thing that you must have experienced in the commons, but then also people that you know in the community who live in Nightingale 1 and now the village yeah. who've gone through, they moved in, I think, around summer, now this most recent summer. So they got to experience just how their buildings were operating. Um, and how, how has that sort of panned out? across the village, the commons and Nightingale One, um, are people still comfortable and everyone's saying, you know, it's totally bearable without the air conditioning uh, in the summers? Yeah, well, so, I mean, I, I can probably really only speak to the commons and Sky House yeah. where, you know, the, 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 you know, I lived in the commons for seven years. Um, we designed a building that would operate, you know, within 19 to 27 degrees, 98% of the year. That was our that was our kind of, you know, mm. and that's a German comfort range, right? Like a European comfort range. In Australia, we like to have our comfort range between the night and twenty-two, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like a very, very narrow comfort range. Yeah. And the Commons breached twenty-seven degrees twice mm. in seven years. Right. And one of those, one of those days, the breach was after a four-day heat wave, where mm. you know we had four days of over forty degrees and no nighttime temperatures below like twenty-seven. So mm. it was pretty extreme. The interesting thing was that during that time, there was also a massive blackout because everyone else had their aircon running. And so, you know, it was, I think it was referred to on Twitter as hipster get, everyone in Brunswick kind of just, you know, spilled out into the streets, you know, desperate trying to get cool, you know. But <laughs> so in that instance, it didn't matter if people had air conditioning because the entire grid just melted down, you know, in those peak events when everyone's trying to run their AC at the same time. So, it, look, the Commons was, you know, uh, it was incredible. I ran really, really well. I'm in a north-facing apartment. It's got a house. Uh, you know, I've got apartments on both sides of me. You know, I've got good 
solar shading mm. and it's been really comfortable in winter and summer mm. um you know and we've got katie skillington a phd you know um candidate for Melbourne university who's been running data on 90 gal one 90 gal two and the commons mm. so we're looking forward to the kind of phd so you know we've got an expert objective view of how how are those three buildings you know how they've been delivered what was their construction methodology what was their external wall build up and then what are their internal temperatures compared to you know operational energy loads so mm. let me get back to you in about you know I don't know how long it takes to finish it. Actually, I think Katie's nearly finished. Uh, so, yeah, let me get back to you in six months' time. And I think okay. we're going to have um, some pretty accurate objective data to tell us, you know, are the buildings doing uh, what we think they're doing? Mm. But to be totally honest, Dan, you know, I, I, I think that because, again, we're at 1.2 degrees of, um, of warming currently globally, and what does mm. that mean? It's not just increased temperatures, right? So mm. with that also, as our oceans warm, we're getting changed wind events. So we're getting higher instances of higher wind, like stronger winds. So we've seen some incredible kind of wind events. Obviously, we've got big rain events, so less frequent, but really big rain events. Mm. And the thing that I never anticipated was increased humidity. So mm. as our planet warms, we've got more evaporation coming off our oceans, which means we've got more moisture in the air. And so, you know, this idea of discomfort is linked to two things. So one is heat mm. and one is humidity. And so Melbourne historically has been, you know, relatively dry climate. Mm. It's historically had a good diurnal shift, which means that the nighttime temperatures cool mm. as we get breezes from the south. I mean, Dan, let's go up on the roof after this and let's look to the south. Mm. So what we built in our city in South Bank and the north of CBD is essentially a wall of curtain wall towers. Sure. And it's changed the microclimate north of the city mm. because, you know, in the afternoon, the sea breeze that we used to get, now there's a wind shadow to the north of the city. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I think that the future has to look at, you know, like for Nightingale anyway, I think mm. that we've got to look at uh, air conditioning in Nightingale. Mm -hmm. But also let me say why. The, mm. You know, when we first built the commons, you know, um, air conditioning was like the refrigerants that we use mm. were like mm. 3,000 times worse than carbon mm. as a, in terms of their greenhouse warming, in terms of their greenhouse warming potential. Mm. Now you can find refrigerants like CO2. And so refrigerants that are not that bad for mm. greenhouse warming. And and all those yeah. things. Yeah. So, so should they leak or when, if the air conditioner isn't, degas properly so the refrigerant technology has changed it's gotten so much better and so much more sustainable mm. at the same time our air conditioning technology has improved about 200 percent. so mm. it's much more efficient now mm. um and because i mean the star ratings on some of the apartments in the village they're extremely high yeah and was that more of a envelope was that delivered through a really efficient envelope or was that more connected to some of the services that might have No, been. it's all, I mean, you know, if you think about NatHERS as a star rating tool, you yeah. know, um, so basically it looks at how much energy per square meter you need to heat or cool the place. And mm. so when you have a very, very tight thermally efficient envelope, uh, you know, and when you're shading, you know, you got the right size, the right amount of glass, and then you're shading that glass, you know, from the north and the west, you know, in summer, but you're letting the sunny it gets pretty easy in an apartment building mm. to get pretty good you know at hers ratings you know so 
yeah, we're seeing buildings in the village that have got, you know, NATO's ratings on average of 9.1 stars. You know, wow. Yeah, so really, really good. So we're very interested to get some data yeah. out of the village over time to say, what does this look like from a lived experience? What does this look like from an energy consumption experience? Mm. Okay. And I guess thinking about what people are doing over in Europe and North America, because I haven't yet specified anything with a heat recovery system in it. I mean, has that been used over in the village? Yes. Yeah, so you yeah. think that there's kind of um, the, the village is broken into, well, it's one building with one set of services generally. Mm. Each of the communities is designed by each of the architects and they have differing approaches. So if you think about Claire's building, you know, Claire Cousins' building, at, at, um, mm. it's called Evergreen. Mm. It has hydronic heating but it also has energy recovery ventilation. So it has has both. Mm. Kennedy Nolan offered energy recovery ventilation as an optional extra. Mm-hmm. So people could choose that. So I'm very interested in that because, mm. you know, we're going to be able to get some data between the same apartment type, one above the other, one with an ERP, one without. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be able to, you know, start to get some real data about how that helps with indoor air quality, how that helps with operational energy. So we're, mm. we're looking forward to getting data done on that. Um, Park Life by Austin Maynard is mm. that's the nine to one one star building, mm. super thermally efficient mm. and nearly ten stars. So there's yeah. no he- there's no heating in there, mm. just energy recovery ventilation. So oh, wow! Again, you know we're interested to find out from some survey data about you know what's the indoor air quality like, what's the indoor temperatures like, what's the lived experience like in a building like that. So and then we've got a different approach in Sky House where Maddie for breathe put in uh, ventilation or make up fresh air, but it's not tempered, so it's not through ERV. So it's kind of a, it's a halfway system. So, and that, and again, that happens in some apartments, not all apartments. Mm. So we've got lots of, lots and lots of data. We need another PhD candidate <laughs> yeah. to find out what actually works, mm. you know, yeah. doesn't and what's, you know, what makes sense from a, from a capital expenditure point of view and then from an operational expenditure point of view, from a capital carbon point of view mm. and then from an operational carbon point of view. So we need yeah. some more objective data of that to tell us, you know. Mm. Yeah. I mean, well, it's such a great project bringing all of these architectural minds together that you can talk and share and test all of these different things. How much of a headache would that give your consultant team with like, okay, so not everyone's going to be using the same services. You know, how are we going to balance that? Because I'm not sure if you were using a similar system to what you had in Nightingale 1 there in, in half the buildings or, or few of them in the village was about taking the best of everything. Mm. So, okay. you know, all of the architects came through Nightingale 1. But importantly, when we started, well, the village was actually imagined as seven different buildings by seven different architects mm. delivered potentially at seven different times. Mm. You know, what became abundantly clear <laughs> from our financiers and our lenders was mm. absolutely not. Okay. It was going to be delivered under one planning permit, yep. okay. uh, run by one development manager mm. and built by one builder. Yes, right. <laughs> uh, uh, and ideally a very big builder with a very big balance sheet. And as it turns out, the banks, the crew at NAB were right mm. because they didn't want to take the risk. And we were like, what risk were you talking about? And like, the risk that we don't know about. And the risk that we didn't mm. know about, of course, was COVID. Mm. And um, of course, having a you know a massive builder like Hesa that was able to stand by us and to bring it through that time, I don't think seven smaller builders would have been able to weather the storm like mm. that. But as we embarked on that process initially, we kind of assembled, you know, a blue sky thinking team of sustainability consultants. So we had this sustainability team at WSP, 
We had um, the UMLI sustainability team. We had um, Pete Steele when he was at Hit versus Hype uh, in there. So we had like all these great, we brought in Ross Harding and kind of picked his brain. We brought in the smartest people in the room and we had a series of sustainability workshops and then everyone kind of pushed ideas out on each of their buildings. And then we brought it all together under one kind of, you know, consolidated package, mm. you know, for, for the village as a whole. So, yeah, so we still have our consolidated heat pump, you know, which does our, our hot water and our hydronic heating. Mm. And so that's got a big buffer tank and that can run off peak or it can run when, when it's tasked to solar, then that circulates around the whole building. Right, and that's yeah. using that smart, smart system you're telling us yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. that's right. And the great thing about building the whole village as one thing is that we're also able to work very closely with the council to say, what's the, uh, I mean, for any of you that haven't been in the village, you probably got to go there to kind of experience it because it feels like it's just, uh, it's five buildings on a street and then another building, you know? And it's hard to understand how they're all connected, but mm-hmm. they're connected under the ground, under the road. There's one substation which connects everything electrically. And so we had to purchase a, you know, a little section of under the road to be able to connect Park Life and Evergreen back to the electricity grid and the recycled water and the fire services and the sewer that all the other buildings were kind of connected under. So while it looks clearly like six different buildings, it is essentially one building with Mm. one shared basement with 15 shared cars in it Mm. and one lot of services and importantly, one substation, Mm. one embedded energy network and then... We worked to, you know, in fact, it was James Senior at Nightingale Housing that worked, you know, pretty closely with Momentum Energy mm. to be able to bulk buy power, 100% green power, and then share the savings of the cost of that power with all the residents. Mm. So we got and, kind and of the, How many apartments is it across the whole village? 203 across the whole village. Oh, my God. <laughs> and that's all the services are connected for that. So, yeah, Correct. so it is, it, it's operating as one building. Yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's mm. individual media, metering and all of that, but we mm. use our bulk buying and we use an economy of scale mm. to bring those savings to all the residents. Yeah, so it means that if you're living in the village, your cost of electricity is kind of 30% cheaper than the person living in the house next door to you, but your power is 100% green. Mm. Wow. It's, yeah, it's, it's good. That's so cool. Talk about electricity. (laughs) No, well, I think that's it's really important to have those conversations, and like you say, being the architects leading this and having the vision to deliver certified green energy at a particular rate, so that it's not you know just making people pay hand over fist to deliver this. It's really important to you know talk about these things in depth, so that then when you have the conversations with whether it's a small or large energy consulting company uh, or electrical consulting company that we can talk in those terms so that you can sort of start to get people's head around it, start them thinking, oh, okay, and then maybe come to somewhere like Nightingale Village, Village to see how it pans out because it's, I guess people need to learn that it can actually be delivered first. Yeah, uh, it actually makes sense, right? It's, mm. it, you know, I, like, I want to say it makes sense, like having centralised services, like it makes good financial sense, right? If you think about the fact, the reason that we purchased that strip of road from the council to be able to connect Park Life and Evergreen back to the rest of the village. It means that we didn't have to duplicate all the services yeah. and to duplicate, uh, you know, fire booster assemblies or fire indicator panels or brake tanks or rainwater tanks. You know, we didn't replicate any of that or a substation. Yeah. So we saved all of that space and instead on the ground floor, we get like a physiotherapist, we get a florist, we get a, a not-for-profit bike 
company that fixes your bikes for you. So instead of having a sea of cupboards, you get this, this great kind of, you know, um, active retailers engaging with the street. Dan, can I just talk to all the architects out there working on multi-rayers? Mm. So we talk a lot to our developer clients about what they can do to kind of position themselves differently in the marketplace. And we talk a lot about saying you can easily deliver a carbon neutral building Mm. um, and it doesn't cost them anything. And so if it doesn't cost them anything, they like that. And the carbon neutral piece helps them in a pretty crowded market well, historically, pretty crowded market, not so great at the moment. Mm. But it helps them in a marketplace to differentiate their product to say that, you know, we stand for something, you know, come and live here and be proud of what you're doing. So the way that we do that is get involved in the owners' corporation rules. So there just needs to be a couple of paragraphs in the owners' corporation rules that say that the building is going to be carbon neutral in operation, that there's going to be um, an independent uh, carbon audit done annually, and that's going to be climate active certified. So literally that can be two paragraphs, very, very simple, doesn't cost the developer anything, but then that can go into the marketing documentation. And then that can be part of the marketing team talking about what this building is. Then you've got to make sure that the building's 100% electric. And then you need to get involved with ideally bulk buying that green power so that the residents get cheaper green power. So there's another cell that you can give to your clients, which is that if they can bulk buy 100% green power and sell it back to the residents cheaper than their main black power, people are worried about the cost of living. And the idea of providing a lower uh, electricity bills is exciting and enticing, and it helps the marketing team sell apartments. So um, again, there's an embedded network operator called B Energy. Give Sam a call at B Energy and say, Sam, we're interested in you guys coming to build the embedded network for us, but it has to be delivering cheaper energy to our residents and it has to be 100% certified green power. Mm. Get Sam to agree to that up front. Sam, <laughs> you better be listening. Um, and then if they if they handle the carbon their side, it gets really easy for the residents to handle the remaining residual carbon in their annual carbon audit. So everyone wins. Great. And as you're mentioning, you know, Sam um, and all these people down the line, does that also, does that conversation need to be had with the Sparkies who are on site as well? Does that have a knock-on effect for them? Because you're working with some incredible people uh, on. The Sparkies don't care. They don't they, care? No, they'll do, you know what I mean? Like they'll, you know, the guys you feed on site, they won't care. They'll just do what the electrical diagram tells right. them. Right. It's just, just when you want their cables to be really straight. That's when it, that's when it, yeah, that's, a longer conversation. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's when you got to redraw. Just draw two reflected ceiling plans. So a reflected ceiling plan and then a services plan. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's great. And I think that's, I guess the my thinking around the sort of sparky considerations when people want to come in and sort of, I guess, add things to the building at a later date and the idea of sort of being future-focused or future-proof, which I guess sometimes scares architects because we're, we're trying to think about the future as much as possible and prepare our clients for, for what our buildings can do uh, later down the track. Um, how has that also panned out with your thinking around things like electric cars? Oh, yeah, sorry, Daniel, you want me to talk about this. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so look, I mean, it's really important. The EV thing is uh, where are we struggling at the moment with EVs? I mean, everyone's always finds a reason to make it difficult, right? Uh, so historically, again, electrical engineers, mm. I've never met one that drives an EV. Mm. So they have no idea how to charge them. Mm. And so I remember being in a meeting and they were talking about, you know, the type of power demand that we needed in a basement 
to power EV. It was like, you know, <laughs> you could run half a Tasmania of the amount of power that they were providing. So as an EV owner, what I found out was that you trickle charge most of the time. What that means is you go home, you plug your car into a 10-amp power point, the same power point that you would have anywhere in your bedroom. Hmm. You might have one in the garage. You plug your car into that, and it charges slowly overnight. And then in the morning, it's 100% charged. And that's the best way for your battery life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, also, because it charges overnight, you know, if you've got a Tesla, you can tell it to schedule. In fact, most cars, you can tell it to schedule their charging, mm. which means that you can start charging at midnight, which means you only pay for off-peak rates to charge your car, right? Mm. So it's cheaper to charge your car. Um, and you're charging off-peak when nothing else is running. Um, so it doesn't give you a peak demand issue. And so you can tell your electrical engineers, we don't need three thirty power points to every car bay downstairs. Instead, it's just 10-amp power points. And then time restrict those 10-amp power points. So make sure that those 10-amp power points can't run in peak demand times. So let's call it from 7 a.m. till 9 in the morning, you know, and from 5 p.m. till 9 o'clock at night. Apart from that, you know, those power points work. So it's just a scheduling issue. So you're dealing then with your um, your demand management. And so when they're building the requirements for the substation, they're not just stacking every PowerPoint in the building all on top of each other to get to, you know, a trillion gigawatts. <laughs> so the charging infrastructure is actually relatively straightforward. Then you can work with external companies like JetCharge or ChargeFox, and you can put in one fast charger into the basement if you want, or a couple of them, for people that need a supercharge and, you know, want to be able to have a, you know, charge their Tesla from zero to 100 in 30 minutes, you could have one of those things. We are finding fire engineers at the moment, building surveyors, being nervous about the idea that, you know, that you're parking a car with a big battery underneath it and maybe it's going to burn and it'll be difficult to put it out. They have no problems filling the basement with a whole bunch of internal combustion engines <laughs> filled with fuel and diesel. <laughs> but you want to put a car with a battery in there, we've got to talk about that. So, look, there's a there's a fire rating issue to be had, but get onto the fire rating issue with your fire engineer and your building surveyor early. Make sure you understand, you know, what the building surveyor's view on that is on the way through so that you at least you're managing that. Right, okay. Otherwise, it leads to kind of thicker concrete, thicker fire ratings between the basement and the ground floor. Great. Um, I love well, that I'm talking about cars, Stan. I know that you love to talk about cars. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think that's, for me, that seems to cover a lot of the ground that architects and, and people in the public can also start to have, so they can start to have their own conversations around this and, and hopefully start to electrify their buildings. Um, so I guess the big takeaways, what would they be um, for out of three? Like electrification, yeah. electrification, electrification. <laughs> and then under those three headings, what do we think first? Would it be talk to your consultant first? No, I don't. I don't think so. No, like I, no. I think un- underneath that, right, is mm-hmm. that, it's, that to electrify a building, mm-hmm. all you need to do is like anything, you make a decision. Mm-hmm. So, as an architect, you know, like at Breathe, we haven't put gas into anything since 2016. Mm-hmm. Or if we do, it is being only if our clients got <laughs> our arms up for our back and stuff. Funny. Okay, yeah. So let's say 90 percent of our buildings have mm-hmm. been electrified since 2016. Mm-hmm. So. It's a mindset, right? So mm. you decide to the architect that you're going to electrify everything because it's important. Mm. And then you make sure you're briefing the consultants mm. to say, do not talk about gas. We're going to electrify everything. You're going to find a way to solve the maximum demand. And you're going to look at load shifting as a way to do that. Mm. And then also equip yourself with the right consultants. So um, 
Uh, if any of you have worked with Ross Harding from Finding Infinity, he's incredible, but he also works really closely with services consultants uh, called Neuron. And Neuron are very, very smart, very intelligent, you know, people that understand the grid and how to work all of this. So, um, again, not recommendations, people. Uh, <laughs> plan cover, don't worry, it's fine. Um, uh, uh, so, but make a decision and then surround yourself with people that actually want to help you get there. Um, and then, yeah, the, the green power piece, Dan. So that's kind of, the first one is make a decision to electrify and the second phase in that is you're right, buy 100% green power. And for all of you out there that are listening that aren't architects, in fact, yeah, everyone, just stop the podcast now, pick up the phone, call your energy provider. So again, I'm not saying these are the best energy providers, but we've done a lot of research um, and we buy, Breathe buys its power from Momentum Energy, 100% green power. And I buy my power um, personally from Momentum Energy and so does Nightingale Housing. Their parent company is Tasmanian, Tasmanian Hydro. Um, and so, you know, super green in terms of their, their generation. Um, and also it's a, it's a state owned asset. It's not just a company operating for profit mm. as, you know, environmental terrorists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think that they're the mm. kind of three things. And then I think that, well, the two things, but the third thing would be, um, if you're an architect working with a developer, mm. you know, think about what do these things bring to your client? How do you bring value to your client? So um, the electrification piece means you don't have to articulate gas around the building. Mm. You don't lose space on the ground floor for a gas meter enclosure. You don't have fire rating issues around that. It also means that your building that you're building stands for something. So it talks about sustainability. And then it makes it very, very easy to make your bar, your building carbon neutral in operations. So, you know, you could have a nuanced conversation with a developer client about, you know, how to how they do that and how that might help them sell apartments in a pretty tough market. Great. Awesome. And then that just makes sustainable buildings more affordable for more people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. and we can, we can talk at length some other time there, yeah, <laughs> all the things you can do, but let's just focus on the easy stuff. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Jeremy, well, thank you so much for talking to me about electrification, electrification and electrification. Uh, <laughs> it'll be great to talk to you again very soon. And thank you so much for being so generous with your time and for sharing so much about Breathe and Nightingale Housing. Thanks, Dan. See you very soon. Bye. <laughs> this has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our guest, registered architect, founding director of sustainable architecture firm Breathe Architecture and founder of alternative not-for-profit development company Nightingale Housing, Jeremy McLeod. Thank you so much for sharing so much information about what can be done to make our buildings more sustainable, including electrification, electrification, electrification. We look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produce architecture podcasts hosted by Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. If you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. 
This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. And the Imagine production team was Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification or advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.